Welcome back, campers. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the Minions thing you said I sounded like? Mm. Yes. <laughs> An excellent segue into the dark things we have to talk about today, because I think those Minions have a dark side. Oh, have you seen, like, the tidbits they put in for the adults? Like, Oh, yes. Those Minions are freaky. <laughs> Which is why young and old alike, we love them, we hate them, we can't get away from them. Mm-hmm. I certainly can't. I know you can't either. It's my child's favorite movie right now. With four children between us under age six. Ah. There's always something like that on the TV. <sighs> Anyways, happy new year, everybody. Ooh. We are seven days into the new year. Is this January 7th? Yes. Mm-hmm. But we're now in 2024, and all of the memes I see online are not making me excited about it. So, but you know what? I think it's going to be a good year. I've decided. Caitlin's looking off into space like she's not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be okay. We'll get through it. We got a lot of... One way or another. Yes, one way or another. We got a lot of really awesome cases that we're planning out for this year and some pretty cool like new little products and things we're going to be throwing y'all's way. So we are very happy that you're here and this is a really good episode. I always felt horrible saying good episode because it's all bad. Like y'all know it's just all bad. This is a murder podcast. Nothing is good, but it's gripping in the sense that this is one of those stories that really just kind of wrote itself and it had a fantastic source in writing it. So we hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did researching it. And yeah. And in case you didn't know by now, (laughs) that's Genevieve. Thank you. And that's Caitlin. And if you've happened to pay attention to the news in the last couple of years, there's been an overwhelming amount of coverage on the Southern crime and murder scandals surrounding Alec Murdaugh and his law practice, which don't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. And the national phenomenon of this case shone the spotlight directly onto Colleton County, South Carolina. And we are talking about Colleton County today. But this case has absolutely nothing to do with the Murdaws. Our story takes place in 1978 when the horrific murder of a young woman in her own living room forever shattered the small town illusion that those things just don't happen around here. This victim never had her own special on Investigation Discovery or an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, although her case absolutely should have. However, what she did have was one incredibly dedicated and dogged special agent who was assigned to the case from day one and refused to let it go cold on the shelf. Year after year for 37 years. This agent also wrote a fantastic book about her journey with the case, which we have used as our main source for this episode and we will link it in the show notes. So sit back, campers, because we have a murder roller coaster spanning almost four decades to take you through today. This is the story of the murder of Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel, a low country cold case finally solved. Lights out, campers. Oh man, the mountain.
Walterboro, South Carolina has long been called as the front porch of the Low Country and is located about 50 miles west from the prominent city of Charleston, South Carolina. Walterboro is known for having a hospitable hometown atmosphere, with the farmer's market being a central institution and high school football is nearly as important as church on Sunday. Fun fact, scenes from the movie Radio were actually filmed at Colleton County High School in Walterboro. So that should give you a good idea of kind of like the whole vibe of that town. It just very much looks and feels like radio, remember the Titans, that kind of quintessential small southern town with all the good things and the bad things. The happiness. The happiness. And the non-happiness. The racism, the, you know, all that, all that stuff. And it was Walterboro where Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel, who went by Elaine, was living and working as a medical assistant at the family practice of Dr. Joseph Flowers. Even though she wasn't from Walterboro originally and had moved there six years earlier from her own hometown of Orangeburg, South Carolina, Elaine was the kind of person that immediately became an irreplaceable part of the Walterboro community. She loved taking local kids to baseball games and sang in her church's choir, and in addition to her job at the doctor's office, was taking night classes in Charleston to pursue her dream of becoming an accomplished artist. She was also incredibly close with her older sister, Olaine, and her mom and dad, Murtis and Wells Fogel. And guys, we just want to say up front that we're going to be going through the episode saying Elaine and Elaine as Elaine's older sister. It is spelled E-O-L-A-N-E and to the best of our understanding, it is pronounced Olaine. Sorry, that's a little bit confusing, but our victim is Elaine. Her sister we're going to be referring to as Olaine. So hopefully that made sense. Olaine described her sister as being a major tomboy when they were growing up, and she said that Elaine loved playing with their cousins and helping out in the nursery at church. Her childhood was joyful and full of love, and she carried that loving spirit around with her wherever she went. Elaine's friends said that she never had an unkind word to say about anybody, and that she had a natural soft beauty and shyness about her that was very cute and that she was always going out of her way to help people. In the summer of 1978, Elaine was 26 years old, had just got herself a fiancé, and like we mentioned before, was working as a medical assistant for the office of Dr. Joseph Flowers in Walterboro. She was living with her friend and roommate, another young woman named Nancy Hooker, and the two of them were renting a cute little one-story house with clapboard siding and a screened-in porch on South Lemmix Street in Walterboro. On the evening of Saturday, May 27, 1978, Elaine was happy and excited because tomorrow was her mom's birthday. And she was planning to drive the 55 miles or so up to Orangeburg and celebrate with her mom and dad, her sister Elaine, and Elaine's husband Larry in the Fogel family home. Elaine and Larry lived about 60 miles away in Whitmire, South Carolina, and they were also planning to drive to Orangeburg on Sunday. 
But for whatever reason, when Elaine arrived home from a late shift at work at around midnight on Saturday night, Larry was still awake and he told Elaine that he just couldn't shake the strange feeling that they needed to go ahead and drive down to her mama and daddy's house that night. So they did. Back in Walterboro, around the same time that Elaine was wrapping up her shift at work, Elaine was leaving the home of two of her good friends, Patricia and Bert Utsi. She had gotten there around 6.45 p.m. to babysit for a few hours, and before she left the Utsis to go back to 210 S. Lemmix Street, Elaine told Patty and Bert that she was going to stop by the Zippy Mart on her way back to the house, which had her arriving at home around 11.30 p.m. Now, understandably, with it being a Saturday night, Elaine's roommate Nancy was not home that evening. She had ridden with her friend and co-worker, a man named Billy O'Brien, to an Amway products fair in Conway, South Carolina. And Billy pulled into the driveway of Nancy and Elaine's house at around 1.45 p.m. on Sunday morning to drop Nancy off. But as the two of them walked up to the screened-in front porch, they felt it was weird that, for as late as it was, they could see all the lights were still flipped on inside the house. Elaine didn't normally stay up that late, and they knew she especially would not have been up that late that particular night since they knew she was going to make the drive to her parents' house that same morning. When Billy tried the front door, it was locked, so Nancy handed him her key. Billy unlocked the front door, which opened directly into the living room of the little house. And the scene that the two friends encountered immediately inside haunts them to this day. Blood was absolutely everywhere. It was sprayed on the wall just inside the doorframe, and the tastefully decorated room shared by the two young women with its classic 1970s floral print couch, farm decor, and braided oval rug had been completely ransacked. The end table, which normally sat just inside the door next to the sofa, was flung over against the wall, and various decor items and odds and ends had been broken and slung all around the room and were splattered in blood. Just inside the door, a smeared trail of blood traveled across the floor, as though something or someone had been drugged through it. And it was at the end of this trail that a horror-stricken Nancy and Billy first laid eyes on their friend Elaine Fogel. The young woman was lying on the floor, face up and unresponsive, with her back against the oval hook rug in front of the couch. One of Elaine's feet was on the floor, and the other foot was partially up on the couch. Her shoes were still on, but she was completely nude from the waist down, and both her shirt and bra had been shoved upwards around her neck. Her head and her face were drenched in blood, and she appeared to have been beaten severely all over her head, face, and body. And as horrific as all of this was, Nancy and Billy became hysterical when they realized that Elaine had a fireplace poker wrapped tightly around her neck. It just truly gave me a chill head to toe. That's, that is a nightmare. Yeah. That is an absolute nightmare. Not like protruding from her like she was stabbed with it. Right. No, it was wrapped. wrapped. Yeah. Ah. That is a monster monstrous. Ooh. 
Nancy and Billy raced to the Walterboro Police Department, which was barely a mile away, and frantically told officers they did not know if Elaine was alive or dead. They just knew what appeared that she had been severely beaten and possibly sexually assaulted. Walterboro officers and EMS wasted no time in arriving at the scene. But unfortunately, their worst fears were confirmed. In Colton County, Coroner P.J. Maxey and pathologist Dr. Frank Trefney were called to the scene. The severity of Elaine's attack was gut-wrenching. She had been beaten so severely that her facial features were distorted and the fireplace poker was wrapped so tightly around her throat that it took the strength of two people at the coroner's office to remove it. God. Many of the deep lacerations and contusions on Elaine's face, hands, and torso were noted to have cross-hatching and semi-elliptical patterns in the bruising, and were found to be perfect matches for the cross-hatching pattern on the handle of the fireplace poker, as well as smashed piece of pottery found at the crime scene. Additional contusions on her arms and hands indicated that Elaine had put up one hell of a fight and had scratched her attacker so deeply that both soft tissue and skin, which were noted to be, quote, slightly pigmented, were collected from beneath the fingernails of both Elaine's hands. Get it, yes, girl. Elaine. After a final review of the autopsy and crime scene photographs, the pathologist determined that Elaine's cause of death was from a combination of the severe head injuries inflicted with the fireplace poker, which was then cinched around her neck and used to strangle her to death. There was also a large amount of semen present on Elaine's body, and her autopsy confirmed that she had been violently raped and sodomized. Her manner of death was unquestionably homicide. Murtis Fogel and Olaine had stayed up extra late that night chatting at the kitchen table and were both anticipating Elaine's arrival the following morning. At around 3.30 a.m., they'd finally gone to bed, and Murtis had barely been lying down for half an hour when she sat straight up from the sound of someone tapping on her bedroom window. It was her own sister, Miriam, trying to get her attention, and through the window, Murtis could hear Miriam hissing, Murtis, it's Miriam. I need you to come to the front door right now. The Fogel family's hearts sank when they opened the door to see an ashen Miriam and her husband, Jimmy, standing on their porch in the middle of the night, accompanied by Walterboro police officer, Jean Brandt, and the Fogel family pastor. Upon hearing the absolute worst news they could possibly imagine, that their youngest daughter had been murdered on Myrtle's birthday, just hours before she should have been on the road heading to Orangeburg, Elaine's father dropped his head into his hands and wept. Oh my God, I gave Elaine that fire poker. She kept it next to the front door for her own protection. At the same time, back in Walterboro, investigators were hard at work carefully documenting and photographing every square inch of the murder scene. Because the front door had been locked when Nancy and Billy first arrived, it was believed that Elaine's attacker may have already been inside the house before she got home. And as soon as she had stepped inside, he attacked. He appeared to have used a lamp, a smiley face bank, a wooden decorative cane that had been discarded on the couch, and as we've mentioned before, Elaine's own fireplace poker. 
The entire living room was turned upside down and blood was everywhere. There was also one pair of white underwear, noted in reports to be of, quote, old lady style on the couch in the living room, which were confiscated as evidence. The only other room in the house that was notably disturbed was Elaine's roommate's, Nancy. Nancy's small bedroom had also been totally ransacked, with her dresser drawers yanked open and rummaged through, and her bedclothes visibly rumpled. I do want to mention, though, here that reports indicate that even though her room was disheveled, it was evident to investigators that the attack did not take place there. The only place where there was an attack and a struggle was in the living room. It was just, you know, chaos in Nancy's room. Another odd detail was that a few pairs of air quotes, bikini style panties were on top of Nancy's dresser and a few more were stuffed in her trash can. And this is heartbreaking, but don't worry. It was fine. Nancy's poor little dog was found petrified and trembling beneath her bed. So if the door was unlocked, how did Elaine's attacker manage to enter and exit her home undetected? The answer quickly became apparent as investigators checked around the outside of the house and found distinct shoe prints in the sandy low country dirt directly below three of the house's windows. It appeared that the killer had made an effort to open two windows and failed before successfully smashing a pane of glass on the rear dining room window, lifting it open and climbing in. This would definitely have explained how Elaine would have entered the house completely unaware that her attacker was already inside. After killing Elaine, investigators believed that the killer had fled through the back door because they found her jeans covered in blood and discarded on the roof of the back porch as though he had tossed them up there on his way out. And bizarrely, even though Elaine's car was still in the driveway, a thorough search of the house never turned up her set of keys. Do not ever let people make you feel like you are being paranoid or crazy for checking every square inch of your house as soon as you get home, even if the doors are locked. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why. And I cannot imagine, my God, that is your safe space. That is an ultimate violation in every way. Just shock of finding somebody in your house. Yes, who is not supposed to be there. That's... Oh, my God. I mean, I got scared walking down the stairs yesterday. Mm-hmm. And our brother-in-law, we're in his house. Mm-hmm. And he was walking. I was like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> He's like, I live here. <laughs> <laughs> well, announce yourself like, at least. Let it be known. <laughs> but, yeah, that's <sighs> terrifying. Yeah. And we really have to give props here to Walterboro Police Department's head lead investigator, Lieutenant Robert Carter and the entire team of local and sled experts that handled the processing of the crime scene. Extensive photographs were taken, and an immense amount of physical evidence was collected and preserved during the processing of the crime scene and Elaine's autopsy, including latent fingerprints and palm prints, bloody shoe prints taken from Elaine's abdomen, pubic hair, semen swabs, clothing, fingernail scrapings, and the murder weapon. Mm. 
Since Elaine was well known in the community from her work as a medical assistant to the prominent doctor, Dr. Joseph Flowers, word of her brutal murder spread like wildfire through the small community. Elaine was beloved by everyone who knew her, and it was inconceivable to them, inconceivable, inconceivable. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> to them that she had any sort of personal conflicts which might result in anyone wanting her dead. But after speaking with Dr. Flowers, investigators thought they might have a pretty solid reason for why Elaine had been targeted. As his medical assistant, Elaine had actually had a key to Dr. Flowers' office on her key ring. And since her keys were missing, but her car was not, their thought was that whomever had taken the keys may have known that she had a key to the doctor's office and hoped to use it to gain access to drugs. They believed Elaine's attack was possibly a burglary gone wrong and that Elaine had surprised whomever had broken in as he was frantically rifling through dresser drawers looking for a set of keys. Needless to say, Dr. Flowers wasted no time changing all the locks to the office that very same day. Mm. What do you think about that? Uh, right off the bat? No. No. Because somebody does a whoopsie looking for keys and then an attack becomes that monstrous that and violent. violent. Yeah. That... And then they're throwing her jeans up on the roof that are covered in blood after violently attacking, raping, and sodomizing a victim when they, oh, they were just there to get something. Keys for drugs. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see that. (sighs) The only way that maybe I could get on board with that thinking is if they were on some serious drugs and just completely unhinged i mean and from what they've gathered from the crime scene and all Mm -hmm. it's a good first step of thought yeah yeah but to me it doesn't they're trying to put pieces together Mm -hmm. in a way that could give them some sort of narrative to say at least we can look into this but to me it's like okay so he or this person took time to break in a window break into Mm -hmm. somebody's house Mm -hmm. murder them that violently Mm -hmm. homie could have literally just broken into the doctor's office that's very true that's a good point like why like they had no problem smashing a window to yeah to get keys yeah it doesn't make sense to me yeah i can't say that i love that from the beginning but i do have to give them props for the thoroughness with which they are doing everything it's not like they're just being like well hmm, you know you know here we are shit talking them (laughs) (laughs) for doing their job and then all these cases where they do nothing we're like yeah "Mm, you could have done better you don't even know how to drive a fire truck yeah like hindsight is always 2020 but it is weird that all that seemed to be missing was her keys yes and she would have had them because she would have driven home Mm -hmm. And people, her door. Yes. Yes. So that, and then that they were stolen and the car wasn't stolen. That is also definitely weird. So maybe I should be a little bit nicer about that theory, but I just can't get past the violence with which mm-hmm. she personally was attacked. Yeah. And yeah. So 
On the Tuesday following her murder, Elaine Fogel was laid to rest at St. George Church Cemetery, just outside of her hometown of Orangeburg. In the morning of the service, one of the funeral directors found a single pink rose lying across his desk with an unsigned note that said, quote, This is for Elaine. Listen. Immediately, that makes me feel really creeped out. Mm -hmm. We have read too many true crime stories and watched too many movies. I don't like that at all. Gives me the chills. Yeah, it's that's uh, there's something yucky about that. The shock and brutality of Elaine's murder had left the formerly quiet and safe town of Walterboro reeling. Men were genuinely afraid to leave their wives and children at home alone, and women just didn't feel safe, period. The Thursday following the attack, Colleton County Press and Standard headlined on their front page, quote, Police Seek Woman's Murderer, and offered a $1,000 reward to anyone that could give information leading to the arrest of Elaine's assailant and Walterboro Public Safety Director Ken Davis implored anyone who had observed a black or white male with scratches, cuts, or bruises on his body to call the police immediately and promised that their identities would be kept anonymous. Now, even though they hadn't released this information officially to the public, the very same morning of Elaine's murder, police were already zoning in on one particular suspect, a 23-year-old white male named Ronald Allen, who lived right around the corner from Elaine in a trailer with his wife and child. Ronald was already pretty well known to law enforcement because he'd stolen a police car as a teenager then proceeded to get into a police car chase that ended with him getting shot in the neck by the police and spending some years in juvenile prison for it, before being released at age 21. As the years went by, Ronald would enlist in the military and get kicked out, developed a reputation for stealing tools from the places where he worked as an auto mechanic, and was constantly being arrested for things like assaults, burglaries, and many, many DUIs. Ronald was also incredibly strong, at least six feet tall and 250 pounds, and people would see him lifting weights on a workout bench in his yard in front of the trailer daily. Supposedly, he could easily lift the front of a car by himself, just the kind of strength it would take for a person to, say, bend a solid metal fire poker in a circle. He also readily admitted that he enjoyed dropping acid and doing drugs whenever he could get them from friends. Well, Ronald. That's not a good look, Ronald. Ooh. So, as you can imagine, by this time, the entire town was buzzing with gossip that Ronald Allen was the killer. All of Elaine's acquaintances, family, close friends, and fiancé had been carefully interviewed and ruled out as suspects. And it only got worse when several weeks after the murder, a former employer of Ronald informed police that Ronald had abruptly quit working for him at his mechanic shop about a month before Elaine's murder. 
but on the day before the murder, he had shown up to the shop asking about possibly purchasing a dark green Ford Gran Torino that was on the lot. The very next day, the day of the murder, that exact Gran Torino was stolen from the lot and was reported missing. Mm. Hmm. About six weeks later, it turned up again. When a sheriff in Tennessee called Walterboro police and said that they recovered one dark green Grand Torino, full of beer cans with tires worn completely bald in the possession of one Ronald Allen. Even this, as bad as it looked, was not enough for an arrest. But with all that being said, both Ronald and his wife, Fran, adamantly denied that Ronald had any involvement in Elaine's death. They said that they didn't even know who she was, and Ronald declared, I did not kill that girl, and I had nothing to do with whatever happened. Fran insisted that Ronald had been laying next to her in bed the entire night of the murder, and took investigators inside of their trailer to show them that Ronald slept on the side of the bed that was flush against the wall. And if he had crawled over her to get out of bed, it certainly would have woken her up. Fran also told police that while she had been getting dressed for work that Sunday morning, she looked out the window and saw a black man with no shirt on standing in their backyard at the water faucet, washing his chest and face. Investigators also took each one of Ronald's shoes and carefully compared them to the photographs of the ridged pattern shoe prints they'd taken from the dirt beneath the windows, but none were a match. And remember, when the glories of DNA analysis and CODIS were not that far off, in 1978, we could really only identify someone's blood type and could only learn from hair samples, basic ethnicity, and sex. So, while it was far better to have the samples collected and preserved than to have nothing, the most that SLED could tell investigators about the samples taken from the crime scene were that O-positive blood was present, which was a match for Elaine, and could mean that her killer had O-positive blood, but there was no way of distinguishing them. Nothing conclusive emerged that could point to a suspect. As the weeks and months went by, the investigation busied itself by one by one going down the list and interviewing pretty much anyone who had been arrested in the Colleton County area, as well as people in other cities and states. But nothing went anywhere. Elaine's family became frustrated by the lack of progress and began doing some of their own investigating. And Caitlin, I don't know why this is, but I found this just incredibly moving when I read this. So Elaine's mom, Murtis Fogel, actually met with a psychic in Columbia, South Carolina, who told her that Elaine's death had something to do with drugs and that it was never the person's intent to kill Elaine. And I do believe that there are some psychics that have real skills Mm -hmm. in that area. I believe a lot of it is bullshit and exploits vulnerable, desperate people. people. Yes. And that conclusion just sounds very similar to what was being spread around already already known information yes yes so there's not any like wild revelations that were given there but this was still really important to murtis and this was her way of 
trying to do something to help solve her daughter's murder. And after she had this meeting with um, the psychic, she actually took a tape of their conversation to investigators to see if it could help them, but they turned her down. Then she begged them to see if they could run Elaine's story on unsolved mysteries, but they told her again it wouldn't help. That just breaks my heart. It's rude. Yeah. Also, who... You don't know that that wouldn't help? Uh, Unsolved Mysteries was one of the most popular shows of all time. Like... Like, what is your search, like, digging up? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I just... But, I mean, as a mother, I would go through, like, anything. There would be nothing that would stop me. Like, I would see every psychic. I would see... Mm Mm-hmm like any and everything so Mm -hmm. i understand her i'd be going to south limit street hosting a seance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i would become full-blown hooky kooky on top of trying to do my own investigating and it's so like looking back at this time it it's a weird time where it was like modern day but also not really because dna analysis codis all of that stuff it just wasn't there yet it wasn't there and it has skyrocketed in like its proficiency just in the last five to ten years and for so long it was literally just that old school police work like photographs fingerprints documentation talking to people word of mouth and my god like i don't know how anybody ever got caught for anything and a lot of pure stupidity oh pure stupidity and a lot of times they didn't like it's the 70s it really is 60s and 70s were wild the glory decades of the serial killer because they knew that people could just kill and get away with it but good for murtis Mm -hmm. and i hate that for her that they were just like "Eh." no 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 no. and i'm sure they weren't dicks about it but still i just i hope that they weren't i just like i think it's because it's such a small town like in the sense where nothing happened so like how many cases do you have on your desk like that Mm. aren't just duis yeah like yeah that's true so i don't know but i do feel for her i really do too Elaine's cousin and her husband, Larry, a newly graduated law student, even moved to Walterboro specifically with the intent of using Larry's skill set to aid in the investigation. But his repeated attempts to offer help week after week were met with kind but firm no thank yous. Really, the police just had nothing for Larry to work with. The agonizing, unresolved months for the Fogel family turned into years, but still they clung to hope that someday Elaine's case would be solved. Just two years after the murder, Elaine's father passed away, and his family firmly believes that he had grieved himself to death. Eleven years after Elaine's murder, in August 1989, SLED's newly established Behavioral Science Profiling Unit finally reviewed Elaine's case file and compiled the following notes on a possible suspect profile. We're going criminal minds. Hotch. 
The description of the offender consists of best estimates and are not 100% accurate. I like that (laughs) disclaimer at the beginning. (laughs) This may be total bullshit, but here you go. White male based more on forensics than behavior. Age 24 to 30. Married. Extremely strong to be able to bend fire poker around her neck. Probably lived close to scene likely to have walked, may have seen victim and roommate outside at home at some point, excessive drinking, may have been drinking prior to the crime and or using marijuana, local arrests for assault, problems with women. He has a problem with authority. Elaine fought back. He couldn't handle that. He did not go to the funeral, and within a few months that followed, might have left town. Wherever he is, he has almost certainly come to the attention of law enforcement for something, and has spent part of his life over the last 11 years in and out of jail. So tell me you're calling out Ronald Allen without telling me you're calling out Ronald Allen. I love me some criminal minds, behavioral analysis unit. Yeah. But... That was very, that was as vague as a psychic. Yeah, and nothing groundbreaking. That's pretty much what we already know. And also where they say the part about it being a white male, and it Mm -hmm. said more based on forensics than anything else. They did not have forensics of hair belonging to a white male. They had hair collected from a lane from her head and pubic hair. They had pigmented skin Mm -hmm. from underneath her fingernails. Mm -hmm. Which, to me, that word pigmented was directly in the coroner's report. So Mm -hmm. what that indicates to me is that either belonged to an individual that was extremely tan, Mm -hmm. which, listen, if you live really around anywhere, but Anywhere where people have blue collar jobs or they're out in the sun right. all day, you're going to accrue like a deep, dark tan. So it either was a deeply tanned Caucasian person mm-hmm. or a person of color. We have, you know, we just don't know, but, but it wasn't a lane. But that's the only evidence yeah. that truly points towards any ethnicity. Yeah. And it wasn't. We know it wasn't Elaine's skin because she was extremely pale. Right. And there was no evidence of, like, scratch marks on her own mm-hmm. body. I feel certain they would have identified those. And they were asking people to call in if they had seen someone of any race mm-hmm. uh, showing up with scratches on their face or chest. And nobody had. So I'm not sure where that is coming from but uh, yeah yeah i think assuming that they built that around ronald allen mm -hmm. makes yeah and it's a pretty damn damning Mm -hmm. like situation for him honestly it doesn't look good and it was easy to kind of be like well they're probably just zoning in on him because he's kind of not the greatest guy but the car theft the proximity the proximity his build his habits his past yeah it doesn't look good but again there's absolutely nothing concrete Mm -hmm. connecting him it's all incredibly circumstantial yeah 
With this information, police had no reason, even all these years later, to look hard in any other direction besides Ronald Allen, who by this time had long moved away from Walterboro. But, like we said before, there was nothing definitive connecting him to the crime scene. DNA profiling was now beginning to be used, but without a sample of bodily fluids or a fingerprint, palm print, or footprint from a known suspect to match to the DNA or the prints found at the crime scene, because again, as of yet, there were no DNA or automated fingerprint databases, there was no way to move forward with the case. After another two years of silence, a bizarre event in November 1991 traumatized the Fogel family all over again. At this point, Murtis Fogel was 65 years old and living alone in Orangeburg. And at around midnight on a Friday night, she heard a voice she didn't recognize yelling outside. She looked out the window and saw a black man standing in her yard. And when he saw her standing in the window, he yelled, do you have a gun in there? Murtis said she did, and the man yelled back, I've got one too. Oh, Hail to the no. And that would be when I would have taken my gun and pointed it out the window and been like, After here it I is. After I my pants. <laughs> uh, even if I didn't have one, I'd have been bluffing. I don't know if Murtis was or not, but she was like, uh, yep, got one. <laughs> sure do. <laughs> Which one do you want me to use? I've got multiple, actually. Oh, one God. in each hand and one in each between my toes. <laughs> hey, full Rambo. Yep. Murtis ran to the phone, but the wires had been cut, <sighs> and I would have peed myself again. Oh, my God. And it was completely dead. The man kicked down the front door ran inside and attacked Murtis with his fists and a stick, slamming her on the ground and threatening her that he was going to rape her. Murtis told the man that she had AIDS and he immediately let go of her, stole $5 and some costume jewelry, and yelled at Murtis as he was leaving, if you come out of the house, I'll be waiting in the yard and kill you. Miraculously, Murtis had survived her own attack. But she wondered every day until her death in 1999 if her assailant could have been the same man who murdered Elaine. He was never found. That was some quick dang thinking on her part. That was brilliant. Horrible. I have AIDS. If you take me down, you're going down with me. Yep. Sucks to suck. That was really smart. And oh, oh my God, what a Oh, what a piece of human trash. That's, what is wrong with people? I just, oh my God. Murtis is a badass. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. He kicked down her door. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all, and this is why we say camping is canceled. Because Mm -hmm. like, if you're not even safe in your house, you want to sit in a flimsy little tent? I mean, for real. (laughs) For real. Can we just say... I mean, but after this, houses are canceled. <laughs> like everything. Oh my gosh. Uh, maybe I'm coming around to that bunker idea, Caitlin. I'm just saying. You know, 
not hey. not the bunker in the Elizabeth showcase, no. but like the underground like multi-million dollar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Swimming pool, sauna, bowling alley. Mm, we'll look theater. into that. Okay. We'll look into that. In July 2002, now 24 years after Elaine's death, the community of Walterboro had never forgotten Elaine. And advancements in DNA testing might finally mean a break in the case. Miraculously, the investigation's number one, and really only ever suspect, Ronald Allen, was able to be tracked down. He had passed away literally a few days prior to agents attempting to contact him to request a cheek swab, but fortunately SLED was able to obtain a blood sample that had been taken from his post-mortem examination. They hoped that by analyzing Ronald's blood and retesting any evidence that remained from the crime scene, they could find a DNA profile that was a match for Ronald's among the evidence, and finally close the case. But, of the remaining items that had not been lost in or deteriorated over time, which included blood swabs from the living room rug, Elaine's jeans, her bra, shirt, and shoes, and the pair of white granny panties found on the couch, but the only DNA profile able to be recovered was Elaine's own. And unfortunately, the most critical piece of evidence, which would have given them an absolute answer, was just missing. The semen swabs taken from Elaine during her autopsy. And another four years went by. Now we need to time travel for a moment back to May 1978. Elaine's case had just come across the desk of a young and dedicated supervisor in the SLED Forensics Photography Lab. I feel a chill on coming as I'm about to say this woman's name, named Rita Schuler. One badass mm, lady. God, I want to be Rita for Halloween, <sighs> for every Halloween from now on, just because I can be like, I am Rita Schuler, and let me tell you about her. Hey, your birthday party theme. <gasps> Rita Schuler theme. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be hilarious. Yes. Everyone wears Rita Schuler masks. <laughs> And then we find her and email her, and she's like, what in, what what the, in the hell? hell? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she finally retires after that. <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> As one must have to, to work with thousands of crime scene photos, Rita had been able to detach from the horror of the subject matter to do her job. But something about Elaine's case really hit home with Rita to the point where she felt an eerie sense of personal connection with her. The two young women were very close in age. They'd both pursued careers in the medical field right out of high school. Rita had previously been an x-ray technician. And she was also chilled by the striking similarities that she shared with Elaine in the style of clothes they liked to wear and the decor that was photographed in Elaine's living room. They both even had the exact same fire poker. At the time, Rita did excellent work with Elaine's crime scene photographs. Lighting was critical in both photographing evidence and developing the film to accentuate fine details otherwise lost to the naked eye. 
and SLED's work in Elaine's case led to the latent print examiners being able to confirm what was noted on her autopsy report, what was one of the most important pieces of evidence a suspect could leave at the crime scene pre-DNA analysis, prints in the victim's blood. And in the overwhelming amount of blood at the crime scene, Elaine had a partially ridge-shaped bloody shoe print on her abdomen and left arm, which had striking similarities to the ridge shoe print found on the ground beneath the porch window. There were also highly detailed photographs taken from latent finger and palm print liftings from all over the house. These photographs were carefully sorted and cataloged into a brown manila folder and locked in a metal filing cabinet where they would remain for the next 37 years. And this is something that I learned, Caitlin, that I didn't really just put together before like really getting into this case about forensic crime scene photography and like photography development, which I now am like, this is so fucking fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it's really like a art that has been lost with now the advanced technology that we have that can detect all of these things at a molecular Mm -hmm. level all the time but basically what Rita Schuler's responsibility was was she would receive the actual like you know they would take a lift of Mm -hmm. the bloody fingerprint or the bloody palm print from the scene that would come preserved to her office. And then she had this very advanced for the time photography setup where she would then lay that latent print lifting on the table and photograph it mm-hmm. with lighting that ensured that every detail was captured so that there was no difference between even a more enhanced, if possible, of the the lift of that fingerprint. And that was what would be preserved and referenced because the other stuff, you know, would just kind of deteriorate right. over time. And if you looked at it 10 years later, it's not going to look the same. But that photograph... That's wild. ...remained for, I mean, forever if you take care of it. So... Well, forever if it's digitized, but it wasn't digitized then. They just had to be that good at their job Mm -hmm. that they could take that and get a photograph and then be like, this is what we've got to solve this thing. So that's really impressive to me and something I didn't really understand. It's not something I would ever thought about. Again, I know I always say I want an HBO show on this. I want an HBO show on people that just do this kind of job, like the stuff that isn't as glamorous, like you're not the detective knocking on people's doors, mm-hmm. showing up at the crime scene and, and staring like at the, the body. 50 other small workers that yeah. aren't small, they're huge, their impact is huge mm-hmm. on making this. You're the person in the lab sifting through Mm -hmm. all of this stuff and your process has to be so meticulous so thorough so without reproach that you actually lead to this being solved and we've seen time and time again where this doesn't happen 
and things get botched, things get lost. I mean, as careful as they were, we already have something major lost, those semen swabs. And it could be something as simple as somebody just like accidentally dropping a file when they were transferring it and it shattering them being like, oopsie. Well, that was from like 40 years ago, so it's probably fine. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Like, I'm just, you know, that's what I would do is I'd be like. (laughs) Not filling out that incident report. They, oh, had a, they had a buttload of evidence. It's probably there, fine. There's it's nothing. fine. And that it was like the most important thing. But yeah. Ugh. Major props to Rita Schuler. And, and it that, just goes to show how important her oh my role gosh. Yes. is in this case. Yes. And what a... That's just a cool job. A very dark job. But cool. If you are fascinated by that forensic type work and you have that like obsessive Mm -hmm. like artist level attention to detail i love it but like i can only imagine the satisfaction Mm. of that being Mm. the breakthrough or just even the tiniest bit that leads to the breakthrough yeah to know that that was like work that you did absolutely Mm. as the years went by lieutenant schuler never forgot about elaine when she retired from her longtime career with SLED, she began exploring another passion she'd always had, true crime nonfiction writing. She devoted the final chapter of her 2006 book, Small Town Slayings in South Carolina, to Elaine's cold case and developed a close friendship with Elaine's sister, Olene, who told Rita Schuler that every year on the anniversary of Elaine's murder, she sat down and read the chapter devoted to her case in Rita's book. She told Rita that every time she did so, she could feel Elaine's presence there saying, don't give up on me, sis. Oh. And her mom's birthday. Yeah. And, oh, God, the women in this family, I mean, everyone in this family, but just, oh, man. In 2010, Rita had a chance encounter with a female sled cold case agent at the grocery store checkout named Natalie Crossland, and they struck up a conversation about Elaine's case. Even though she couldn't give Rita details, she said they had been resubmitting evidence again for forensic testing and that, quote, I think we have some new results from the original evidence that could possibly help solve this case. Ah! Rita's butthole clenches. (laughs) (laughs) squeezes the orange Ah. in her hand (sighs) every now and then there would be a new article about an attempt to look at something related to it again someone in prison claiming to know something something being retested from the crime scene but these amounted to nothing other than gestures of goodwill on the part of law enforcement and nothing concrete ever emerged in 2010 Elaine Fogel's murder was listed as the oldest cold case on SLED's website. Wow. On May 27, 2015, the 37th anniversary of Elaine's murder, Elaine placed a phone call to Rita Schruler. she just finished rereading Elaine's story, and for whatever reason, on this particular anniversary, was stuck by an overwhelming feeling that they needed to call the Walterboro Police Department again. Her hunch would prove to be right, because she was immediately put through to a brand new investigator named Corporal Jean Johnson, 
who was just 13 years old and living about 20 miles away in Smoke, South Carolina, when Elaine had been murdered, had just been handed an enormous case file by the brand new Walterboro Police Chief, Wade Marvin. Elaine was ecstatic and gushed to Corporal Johnson about her friend Rita Schruler and the obsessive work she had accomplished in her career and retirement to research and write about Elaine's case. Really, there was no one more knowledgeable on her sister's case than Agent Schruler. The very same day, Rita received a call from Corporal Johnson, who said he was determined to solve this for Elaine and her family, and enthusiastically granted Rita full access to Elaine's case file. And the rest, as they say, was history. Mm. And everybody needs to pause right now if you have not done it already and go look at the Instagram post that we have of Corporal Jean Johnson and Rita Schuler standing side by side. They are iconic. <laughs> they are so awesome. Rita is this tiny, incredibly badass looking, short, white-haired lady, but she looks like she could like run a marathon oh, honestly. She, oh my god and then corporal gene johnson is this massive big shouldered like stern looking man but rita schuler describes him as just being like a giant teddy a bear giant right? teddy bear yes and they are standing next to each other and i'm just like oh my god i, I need i need a full crime anthology of the two of them solving cases together because i would watch it over and over oh he was just like buckle up rita we're doing this and we're doing this rita and finally finally why can this not happen more often where somebody who has well-documented expertise mm -hmm. and something that has been cold for so long and is like I will make it my life's mission to see that this gets solved. Please give me access to the case file. And again, it's and it's they're not like, okay. like Chicago or like like a big city. It's yeah. not Charleston itself. Yeah, it's a town, a little town. Yeah, the oldest cold case on sleds. Yeah, webs. Oh, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm so glad that that police chief Marvin, that Corporal Johnson mm -hmm. were just like, yes, let's get this done. And that they were like, oh, you know, well, that's really not your jurisdiction anymore. You know, you're retired. You don't have the credentials because that happens all the time. And I know why we have to have processes mm -hmm. and information protected because we just can't have rogue, like, keyboard investigators going crazy. But... It is worth noting that there are times where this kind of access is appropriate when nothing has happened for so mm -hmm. long. Like there should really be something where after so many decades, if nothing has happened in a certain open amount of up. years, open it up, bitches. Our Gmail is campingatcancelled <laughs> at gmail.com. But that just makes sense because, like, crime isn't doesn't stop. Murder doesn't stop. Those cold cases become less and less likely to be solved. So, yeah, I would love to hear somebody's thoughts on this who, and obviously we are not law enforcement 
Nope, pretty far. Uh, and <laughs> pretty, pretty far, far as although we like to fancy ourselves as, you know, on a certain level. But yeah, it just seems like what could be the harm after so seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Even ten years, like even five years, it's like isn't the whole point yeah. to solve this? From day one. I mean like, <laughs> Honestly, like an hour after. As soon as those forty eight hours are up, like mm-hmm. let's get going. You have forty eight hours to get this done. If not, I'll be waiting. <laughs> <laughs> oh. If that was the case, <laughs> we'd get so many emails. Oh, God. <laughs> We're like, okay, you guys think you're so oh, smart. Here you go. Yeah. Oh gosh. No, I I have immense immense respect for mm-hmm. for good law enforcement. Like all of the people that we have read about in this case, mm-hmm. overwhelmingly, there was very good policing done and. Yeah, um, I'm just excited that that's what happened so quickly when she was like, hey, can I have access to this? And he was like, oh, please. <laughs> sure. My pleasure. Now, remember the random conversation Rita had had with the cold case sled agent at the grocery store about new results? Well, in reviewing a report from 2010... Rita's jaw hit the floor when she read that, miraculously, a combination of both male and female DNA, not just female as they'd believed for all of those years, had finally been recovered from that one pair of white, air quotes, granny panties, or what is known as a mixed DNA profile. The female profile was identified as Elaine's, but the male profile was unknown. As Agent Schuler called it, this was a hand-to-God moment. This unidentified male profile had subsequently been submitted to CODIS, and the man that law enforcement had leaned so hard on for all those years, Ronald Allen, was immediately eliminated as a suspect. That's real quick what I want to say about this is I understand why they leaned hard on Mm him. 100%. However, as far as we know, Ronald Allen never actually murdered anyone, not saying he was an upstanding citizen. But there's a difference between stealing a car and murdering somebody a vast and very different put it in here further but he did bite his brother's a chunk of his brother's ear off i mean he did but who is not one sibling fighting yeah but i mean like he probably deserved it but biting somebody's ear off (laughs) is a little different than killing them yes again i'm not saying that he was a great person but he did not That accusation destroyed his life, and even after leaving Walterboro in interviews with his brothers, Mm -hmm. his brothers told law enforcement that, like, in the last years of his life, he really just kind of descended into swallowing handfuls of pills every day. He was incredibly depressed. He never wanted to talk about his life 
prior to anything that happened, you know, when he lived in Walterboro. And I really think that that accusation and small town gossip, Mm -hmm. like he never could show his face again in town after that. And so it just goes to show you how careful we have to be in that whole process of accusing people. And uh, I I really hate that for him. And it makes me very sad that that was what his life became mm-hmm. defined by and he could never get away from it. And he never knew that Ugh. the public knew he was exonerated. And that's just very sad. So now that we know that, for the next three solid months, Corporal Johnson and Rita Schuler spent every day and sometimes into the night combing through reports, crime scene photographs, and evidence, even calling each other about the case after they went home. They were incredibly meticulous and thorough, going so far as to track down Elaine's former fiancé, as well as the son of her former boss, who was no longer living, Dr. Joseph Flowers, and various other male acquaintances of Elaine's who were still living, to see if they would all voluntarily submit cheek swabs, which they all did, and were all effectively eliminated as suspects. I love that they did that, because Mm -hmm. once you had that male underwear on the pair of underwear or that male <laughs> underwear blah, 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 blah. once you had that male dna yes. on the pair of underwear that is huge but it could have just as easily been from her boyfriend yeah it could have even been like you don't know maybe it could have even been like that wasn't actually elaine's underwear and it could have been nancy's right and it could have been nancy's boyfriend's but you you know that that level of oh, we've got something, you can't just immediately jump to a conclusion. And so I love that they now all these years later are like, okay, now we can actually Mm -hmm. eliminate people with DNA, not just by talking to them, which is what they did at the time, was eliminating by talking to them. That's crazy. Yes. And apparently Dr. Joseph Flowers was somebody that was given the side eye Mm. as mm, for whatever reason interesting yes and there are little moments throughout Rita's book where she kind of hints that people were talking about some and she never outright says it but I'm glad that he was also eliminated. I don't think it was to the degree that Ronald Allen Mm -hmm. was, but I mean, people are going to try to figure it out and they're going to talk. So especially, yeah, small town gossip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They truly believed that the partial male DNA profile recovered from Elaine's underwear was going to be the key to solving the case because Overwhelmingly, DNA is now how so many cold cases have finally been able to be solved. But with every possible suspect who was eliminated, Corporal Johnson and Lieutenant Schuler felt like they were taking two steps forward, only to fall back again. There was some piece that they just had to be missing. On August 20th, 2015, Rita was milling about her house getting ready for the day 
feeling frustrated and even further away from solving Elaine's murder than she ever had. She went back in her mind all the way to 1978, when she was an eager young sled agent, and she'd been in charge of carefully photographing and filing the lifts of those latent fingerprints and palm prints from the crime scene. A light bulb blazed on in her head. The fingerprints and palm prints. They had been so focused on DNA matching that they'd somehow forgotten that sometimes what it all boils down to to catching a killer is that true old school police work. Buzzing with excitement, Rita immediately placed a call to former SLED colleague and friend Tom Darnell, who was still an active agent with SLED. Rita asked Tom if he could please check the folders belonging to the SLED photography filing area from 1978 and see if the original photographs she had taken of the latent finger and palm prints from the crime scene were still at the back of the room in a metal filing cabinet where she'd put them all those years ago. He found them. Within no time, Tom Darnell had pulled a Polaroid negative of a palm print that had been lifted from a table at the crime scene in good enough condition to upload it to the APHIS database, aka Automated Fingerprint Identification System. And in less than an hour, they had a match. <laughs> I was oh so, my god! <laughs> I was so livid when I got to that part in the book. Oh god! You guys had fingerprints and palm prints sitting for all these years. Yeah. How do you, how do you just forget about one piece of evidence? Yeah. I'm sorry, Rita. This is where I have a little bit of beef with you. How do you forget about like my only thing that I can think is that at this point Elaine has been dead longer than far longer than I have been alive. And she had already worked hundreds probably thousands of other cases, you know, I don't know like well, something just got just lost, blaming you know? Rita. No, but no, I know. All the people and I don't know what's in a case file exactly. Yeah. But I would imagine the evidence is in there and the mm-hmm. pictures in there mm-hmm. or like reference to it is in there. Mm-hmm. Why? I I don't know, but that yeah. that enraged me. Yeah. I was like after all these years you finally remember God. that piece of evidence? Yeah. It makes you wonder if somehow they just weren't because they were kept at sled mm-hmm. and sled headquarters are a completely different location than Walterboro mm-hmm. police headquarters. So there was like some, you know, like dissonance between what was in the file there and that there were just these other little pieces scattered about. I, I don't know how that happened. And that, I mean, I had just assumed yeah. that they did run those and found nothing yeah. and it was just never stated right, until right. it was blatantly stated mm-hmm. that it was never. Yeah. Ah. Yep. Because they didn't have the APHIS. Right. So once technology caught up, it was all about DNA and CODIS mm-hmm. and APHIS just kind of fell to the back burner, I guess, which clearly as just as critical as anything else oh man less than a hour an hour that is (laughs) 
I'm happy. I'm happy though. <laughs> just just imagine shocked. Tom Darnell was just like eating his little cup of noodles, like do 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 do. Ding 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 ding. Rita, you gotta see this. I can. Oh. Now Rita's buttholes clenching. Oh my god. Uh huh. Oh, I would have passed out. Yeah. When Rita Schuler called Corporal Jean Johnson and exclaimed to him the name James Willie Butterfield, Corporal Johnson's only response was, Wow. <laughs> wow. He was a man of few words. You know, how people say wow is very important. Can I you love your like, interpretation. Can you wow. say it like John? Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Oh, or oh. it just could have been like, wow. Or. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I love how you said it, though. He was probably just like aghast with just like. Oh, my God. The 58-year-old black male was quite well known to Corporal Johnson and the entire Culleton County Sheriff's Office. In 2002, Johnson had personally arrested Butterfield for violently assaulting a neighbor woman who lived directly across the street and beating her with her own lamp. What? It was Corporal Johnson himself who had swabbed Butterfield's bloody mustache and sled had matched it to the victim's blood found at the crime scene. Johnson's blood ran cold when his memories from that encounter with Butterfield rushed back to him and the woman who had survived his attack told police, The man that attacked me told me, If you don't do what I say, I will kill you, because I've already killed one woman. Oh my god. No wonder he was like, oh wow. Like... That was his own light bulb together. moment. Yeah. He was that meme that we all know what it is. The lady with all the <laughs> all the math quotations. They're just like... Oh, my God. Ah. And a well-known person with mm-hmm. medi- or medical, with criminal history yeah. and violence yeah. and... From the same county. Oh, <sighs> Butterfield also had extensive record, which dated back to 1979, just 10 months after Elaine's murder, for the horrific assault and rape of a 19-year-old woman. The incident report stated that the victim stated that she was walking to her mother's house and a pickup truck passed her several times and then came back and stopped. It was someone she knew, Willie Butterfield. He pulled out a gun and made her get in the truck. He took her to the wooded area, made her take off all her clothes, and raped her. Afterward, he tied her feet together and told her, I just might kill you before this is all over. Oh my god. After that, she said that he just got back in his truck and left her there. She later somehow made her way to her mother's house, and she reported the attack to the Colleton County Sheriff's Office. Wow. Ugh. That's delightful. We're seeing a pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the time of the attack, Willie Butterfield was 20 years old, 5 feet, 11 inches tall, and weighed 185 pounds. Hmm. So he was not a little shrimpy individual. 
uh, yeah just the rage or like whatever he was his body was pumping Uh during that attack to bend that fire poker yeah in 2010, Willie Butterfield, I hate saying his name. It sounds I, like a Clue character. It really does. It doesn't sound real. Willie Butterfield was again arrested and charged at 53 years old for the desecration of human remains, unauthorized removal of a dead body, and grand larceny. Essentially, an 83-year-old man named Willie Singleton had been reported missing by his daughter and several days later, his body was found in the trunk of his own car in Colleton County. 83. I'm sorry, continue. God, I hate people. I hate people. Honestly. Willie Butterfield confessed to placing an already deceased Mr. Singleton in the trunk of the car after he died in a local motel in the presence of Butterfield. And a 28-year-old woman named Deborah Allen. So that was all they ever figured out, to my understanding, was that this man died, air quotes, in their presence in a motel room after he was reported missing. And, and he then, then placed his body in his yeah. trunk. So I'm going to take some liberties and read between the lines that they were not just standing there being like, Oh, let's hold his hand as he passes on into the next world. God. But a competency evaluation conducted in 2013 concluded that Butterfield was not mentally competent enough to stand trial. And he was admitted to Crafts Faro State Mental Facility in Columbia, South Carolina. And where he is still living in 2015 when Corporal Johnson sat down with him for an interview and obtained a buccal swab to send SLED DNA lab for comparison analysis with the DNA from the infamous crime scene, Granny Panties. Mentally unstable, my ass. Oh my gosh. And even then, who cares? I don't care if you're crazy as a loon. You still did what you did. Multiple times. Yeah. I have very, very little empathy for that. On September 28th, 2015, Corporal Johnson texted Rita Schuler, We got a match on Butterfield. Call you later. After 37 years, they thought it was finally over. Now, before you hardened true crime experts begin to panic, because as you know, DNA samples obtained from any possible suspect while they are legally deemed mentally incompetent are not admissible as evidence in court, like the buccal swab wouldn't be since they'd taken it from Butterfield at the mental hospital in 2015, but Corporal Johnson was already two steps ahead, and they had already submitted Butterfield's DNA from back in 2010 to also match with the male DNA from the crime scene granny panty underwear, which it did. Finally, in December 2015, James Willie Butterfield was officially charged with murder and the death of Elaine Fogel, criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, and burglary in the first degree. Colleton County Police Chief Wade Marvin, Corporal Johnson, and Lieutenant Rita Schuler 
were all present in the room with the Fogel family. As the room fell silent and Corporal Johnson humbly delivered the news to Elaine that after 37 years, her sister's murderer had been arrested. Rita took Elaine's hands and handed her two red roses, one for her and one for Elaine. In the ensuing months, multiple hearings would take place as the wheels turned slowly to culminate in a trial for James Willie Butterfield. But it would never come. On May 22, 2017, a competency hearing was conducted at the Colleton County Courthouse to determine if Butterfield was competent to stand trial for Elaine's murder. After reading the results of two evaluations conducted on Butterfield over the last few months, which concluded that he was not competent and likely would never be so, Judge Paul Buckner ruled a dismissal of all charges against him and declared that he is ever is deemed competent, charges could be filed again. Until then, he would continue to remain living as before at the Crafts Pharaoh Mental Health Facility with the addition of an ankle monitor as an extra layer of security to make sure he remained on its grounds. Well, gee, thanks. Throughout his various hearings, Butterfield remained void of emotion and disinterested. Now, there are a few words we want to leave you here with. The first of these from Elaine's sister, Elaine Fogel, about her baby sister. One thing that Elaine used to do still bothers me every time I think about it. Elaine loved life so much and was so comfortable where she was in life. She would strut around the house and laugh, saying, when I die, I'm going to make history. Mm. I guess in a way she did, but not the way any of us would have ever imagined. And the last thing we want to leave you with is the final note written by Lieutenant Rita Schuler at the end of her book, The Low Country Murder of Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel, a cold case solved. Even though Elaine's case is now ruled closed, her family still lives every day with the loss of Elaine. She was taken from them by the evil acts of James Willie Butterfield, but they never forgot her, and they never will. The city and residents of Walterboro as well have never healed from the heartbreak of losing one of the town's most loved people, but Elaine will never be forgotten. Corporal Johnson shared with me, quote, I wanted to close my law enforcement career as a sheriff or police chief of a smaller agency, but once the Fogel case was solved, I felt that recognition outweighed all and has become the highlight of my career. For myself, my 37-year quest of seeing Elaine's case solved finally concluded. Cherished words from her family will always remain with me. Thank you for giving us hope. Corporal Johnson and I remain in touch, and we hold on to the hope that one day Willie Butterfield will be deemed competent and his charges for Elaine's murder and sexual assault will be filed again. And when that happens, it can be assured that Corporal Gene Johnson will be standing right there to place handcuffs on James Willie Butterfield as soon as he is let out of the facility. And God willing, I will be right there next to him. But, I mean, for it being a case where the victim did die, not a survival case, mm -hmm. it is a very bittersweet story. Yeah. yeah. To 
after all these years mm. have answers and not everybody yeah. gets those and that's yeah and i mean while i was reading the book mm-hmm. i was i was like it is ronald mm. oh yeah like yes just the evidence was so mm-hmm. damning yes and how how did willie butterfield slip through the cracks like that that's what i don't understand and that's really not addressed in the book and articles is if they were Mm -hmm. at the time it said that they were going through people that had been arrested when willie butterfield would have attacked elaine he would have been 19 Mm -hmm. so maybe they just already had such a specific profile in mind of of basically like i hate to say it but kind of like a white trash mm -hmm. type person who was like a fully grown adult that you know you know what i'm saying like there's a there's a type of person Mm -hmm. that you're like oh it was probably them and they didn't think like maybe when they're scanning here here's like a teenage boy oh mm-hmm. it, like there's no way it could have been a teenage. yeah i don't know well and then he was tinier than they imagined yeah and then also i mean i guess yeah. benefit of the doubt is that his other crimes yes his other yeah. crimes didn't mm-hmm. happen until 10 months after that's very true that's and very true they did not end in death mm, that's very true and they were not really after those first few months mm-hmm. it seems that was when they were okay we're we're interviewing every single person that's been arrested in this last few months in this county and it really i think just was a situation of him falling through the cracks like i it was it wasn't like negligence on their part it was just like why would they think to connect him honestly i when mean it was the that, missing yeah. keys the yeah. lack of evidence yeah a freaking fire poker bent Ugh. around her neck yeah her jeans on the roof mm-hmm. and that's another thing too is that like the violence of that assault you're not gonna then even if he had been arrested earlier I would not see that and think like, oh, a teenager could do something Mm-mm. like that. That's giant, older, buff mm-hmm. man, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just trying to think through how that could have possibly happened. But it wasn't for a lack of them putting in effort initially. It yeah. just... But what's interesting... And we don't know if it was the same person, but the comments that were made about Fran seeing a black man Mm -hmm. in their yard washing in the spigot could have just been somebody fucking random being like, oh, I'm going to do a quick wash up. But it could have been Willie Butterfield. You just don't know. And then um, I know we kind of discussed it Mm -hmm. outside of this, but her mom's attack. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. What what, what are the if? Uh, yeah. It was wild. Something in my gut tells me that it was him. I don't know. I don't know why, but that comment about 
I've done it before. Did he say something like I've done it before to Murtis? I don't remember. Or no, he, he just. I think said, he said that to the girl he took to the woods. You're right. He did say to Murtis though that if you he, he threatened to kill mm-hmm. her. Yeah, he threatened to rape and kill her. I mean, and she's in a different county, yeah. but yeah, I, that's so <sighs> wild that it an attack like that would happen mm-hmm. twice within the same family. Yeah. Yeah, that is absolutely chilling. Ugh. I am just, I feel like I've been on a roller coaster with that story. Fantastic another book. Another one close to home. Very close to home. I did talk with my mom who was, she would have been around, let's see. My mom would have been even younger than Corporal Johnson, I think, when this happened. She would have been in grade school. Mm-hmm. And I remember her saying that she definitely, like, remembers that name, Elaine Fogel, like, as I was starting to talk to her about mm-hmm. it. And she was like, I know that people were talking about it and that there's no doubt that, like, her mama and daddy knew yeah. people because everybody knew everybody in Colleton County but what a just like bone chilling like mark on the safety of that little community Mm -hmm. to go and solve for that long and Larry and her cousin Elaine's cousin Mm -hmm. that had moved to Walterboro hoping to help with the investigation I remember reading that they really began to feel paranoid and like afraid because they moved to Walterboro but to help find the killer but nothing was happening and so they just kind of felt like all they were doing was looking over their shoulder at every person in town and being like is that him is that him is that him and yeah that would just be a horrible place to be in so yeah what a story and what a testament to what can happen even after that long when people are like we're getting this done Mm -hmm. we are getting this done well (laughs) let's uh petition for there to be a rita schuler and corporal gene johnson day (laughs) 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 it should be a a bank holiday yes i would like a day off for my responsibilities. <sighs> Is there anything else? Now that we're coming down off of the the highs and lows. Um did we confirm that our next case is Israel Keys? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, we are going to be covering Israel Keys for our next case. He is one of the most horrifying like serial key serial keys <laughs> <laughs> Israel Keys is one of those killers that a lot of times I'm able to do this and just kind of like walk away and not think about it again like I can detach but I or have lied in bed at night understand yes the psyche of the person yes him, he's not him. so complex Mm -hmm. but not Mm -hmm. in the same way 
it's terrifying yes even though it's not spoilers like just google it he's no longer living we'll cover all of that but even knowing he's no longer living like i have lied awake at night feeling scared of not of him but of the concept yes of what he did as that type of killer and we're gonna get into all of that when we talk about him so make sure y'all come back next week and in the meantime we hope james willie butterfield has a miserable 2024 and everyone else has an amazing 2024 (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and with that you guys know where to find us Mm -hmm. Uh, camping is canceled at Instagram, TikTok. Mm-hmm. Our website is campingiscanceled.com. Mm-hmm. And please feel free to send us any case suggestions, mm-hmm. personal stories, mm-hmm. nice yes. reviews if you want, mm-hmm. uh, to campingiscanceled at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Yes. Shout out to Gary, who sent us a fantastic case suggestion mm-hmm. that we absolutely are going to be covering. And when I googled the name of this person that he gave me there was nothing and it took some digging into Mm newspapers.com and it unlocked a vault of bonkers articles so thank you Gary we will be covering the case suggestion that you sent us so y'all also be looking for that to drop in your feed soon Um, I'm not going to tell you the name because I want to selfishly secrets. tell yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Keep your secrets. Mm. <laughs> All right, then. Keep your secrets. <laughs> Catch you guys back next week. Bye. Bye.